your opportunity to listen and learn from the most successful people driving growth and success in Palm Beach County and beyond. Welcome to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principled Wealth Advisors. Carrie and his guests share stories and insights from Palm Beach County's most successful executives, entrepreneurs, and community leaders. Learn how they made it to where they are today, what principles guide them, how they mentor others to achieve success, and more. This is Carrie Stamp, and you're listening to the Business in Paradise podcast. I have a really, really exciting guest with us today, my good friend Ken Kennerly, who is not only the executive director of the Honda Classic, but he's also the president and CEO of K2 Sports Ventures. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here, Kerry. Thanks for having me, pal. Ken, you have uh, what I would consider for most young guys to be an absolute dream job. I had so many friends that told me, hey, I want to go into sports marketing. And I even had a couple of friends when I was living in Chicago that worked for the Bulls and thought that was their entree into sports marketing. They were really just selling advertising. How did you get started in the sports business? Well, it's, it's um, I don't know if we have enough time on this great podcast for it, but it's, you know, short and sweet. It's, I was at Dartmouth College where I went to school and I grew up doing a lot of sailing and I was watching the America's Cup, which we lost for the first time in 120 plus years. And I was watching it live in our fraternity room at three in the morning, live from Perth, Australia. And all of a sudden, I noticed that the sailboats, the hulls of the boats, the commercial, the, the advertising around the America's Cup was obviously all commercial. And it dawned on me at the time that, you know, I grew up sailing, so sailing was a very Corinthian sport to me, meaning it was it was an amateur sport. And now for the first time, and we've seen that since then, by the way, with baseball, with hockey, with the logos on the boards, baseball now in the outfield, it's not just Little League that has logos and commercial sponsorships, it's it's all sports. So I noticed that actually in 85, and I'll never forget, I'm three in the morning, you know, those that were up with me were probably drunk from playing beer pong in Dartmouth in our fraternity, but I was there watching the sailing, and I, I really took a liking to what I was seeing while it was a little bit different in my world, but as a economics major in college, wanting to get into the business world. In the mid-80s, all my buddies were going into Wall Street, carrying into your business or, you know, other businesses, lawyers, doctors, et cetera. And I wanted to, you know, pursue something called this whole sports marketing business. So I did a lot of research and, you know, came across a company called IMG, which really Mark McCormick was the godfather of the business, started that firm in 62. And then ProServe, Donald Dell, um, started um, his company ProServe in 69. Both gentlemen, McCormick and Dell, were practicing lawyers. McCormick represented Arnold Palmer and hence became his manager and then Gary Player and Jack Nicholas's manager. And Donald Dell, being a tennis player, famous Davis Cup player and top 20 in the world at one time, I suspect, represented Arthur Ashe and Stan Smith. So both of those gentlemen really are the two pioneers of this business. And I did a ton of research, Carrie, and I, I pursued this, knocked on a lot of doors. But, you know, look, it's, it's a multi-billion dollar business today. And, you know, it's a career path that I wouldn't give up for anything. It's just, it's been a wonderful ride. And frankly, I got into it you know, while not in 62 or 69, I got into it immediately out of college in the mid 80s and have been in it for 32 years now. Wow. So as an aside, there was only one school that I really, really wanted to go to and they wouldn't accept me. And that, of course, was Dartmouth College. (laughs) So amazing place. I got into 
Uh, every other school that I applied to, I ended up going to the University of Southern California. I got into Vanderbilt, which I'm sure I have no chance at today, but Dartmouth was the only one that said, Carrie, you're uh, not Dartmouth material. So, uh, well, they're lost, Carrie. They're yeah. lost because uh, I had a great time. And, and to your point, I don't think any of us would get into the schools we went to 30 plus years ago. And I've always had a chip on my shoulder, and I've used that chip on my shoulder about Dartmouth to propel me in my career. So, but an absolutely beautiful place. Now, before Dartmouth, Ken, you grew up in New York City, is that right? I did, born and bred right in the city. And what was it like growing up in the city, going to school in the city, and just living in in probably what a lot of people would consider the greatest city in the world? Well, it was, you know, again, when you're born and bred there, you don't know any different. My mother was from Augusta, Georgia. So, of course, you know, my whole family's from the South. My dad was a New Yorker. He was born in 1915. So I had a, an older father, uh, really born and bred. He was at Columbia, architecture and engineering, got out in 37. Ironically, on a quick tangent, they won the Rose Bowl in 35 or 36, which is a great trivia question, by the way. They took the train out to California, beat Stanford in the famous Rose Bowl game. But no, born and bred in New York City. There are not many of us around that people run into. Uh, I honestly didn't know any better. We were very fortunate to have a, a little home out in Long Island that we'd go out to on the weekends. But yeah, I grew up on the city streets. I didn't have a backyard full of grass where I was playing kickball or throwing a football. I was doing it on the sidewalks in New York. And you know, I went to a, a school called St. David's, which is up by the Guggenheim Museum. And then I went on to prep school from there up to Choate, up in Connecticut, and then on to Dartmouth. But it, it was it was wonderful growing up in the city. And today, Carrie, while we live down here in the best place, I frequently say the best place on the planet in Palm Beach County, when I go back to New York, like many of us do, you know, I'm never intimidated by it. I'm a city kid, born and bred, and, you know, nothing intimidates me. And, I, and that, you know, frankly, I've been around the world in many great cities. My job has taken me to many great places. And there's, there's nothing that intimidates me, uh, you know, compared to uh, where I grew up. So let's go back to Dartmouth. You're, you're watching the World Cup. You're in the fraternity house. Uh, you subsequently graduate from Dartmouth and, and uh, start your career in sports marketing. What was the first job out of college? So again, watching the America's Cup, the sailing, I, I did so much research. And I, like many people in my profession, I accepted an internship. Uh, ironically, down here at Palm Beach Polo, I was an intern banging stakes and setting up ropes for the old Chrysler Team Championship, which was the, the event Johnny Miller started with uh, Mike and Mary Lametica. They were from Westchester originally, and they moved down here, and they started this this event, which Chrysler became the title sponsor. It was a team championship. So it was, you know, I met Freddie Couples and Mike Donald, Billy Ray Brown and his partner. There were a lot of guys. It was a two-man team deal. It was a lot of fun. It was an after-season event. We don't have an after-season anymore, of course, on the PJ Tour, but it was a December event, and it was a lot of fun for the guys. So that, that was my first job. It was an intern, and then parlayed that into working for Donald Dell at ProServe, uh, when I um, moved up to Washington. And so that was my first real paying job was ProServe for Donald Dell. And just so we're clear, Palm Beach Polo is the golf club Correct. in Wellington, not the polo grounds. Right. So the golfers were coming to play at the golf club, not at the polo grounds? Correct. Absolutely right. Palm Beach Polo and Country Club, I guess I should have properly said, yes. All right. And so you go to Washington, D.C.? I moved to D.C. from down here, yes. And you spend some time working at ProServe? I did. I was at ProServe for three years, and then I transitioned over to Advantage International, which was the spinoff of ProServe in 1982. A great sports marketing story. Half the company literally in the middle of the night picked up and moved. 
led by Lee Fentress and a few of his other partners, they were all Donald Dell's original partners, and they moved and formed Advantage International, which in today's world people would know it as Octagon. Octagon is a, a, a company that was formed and, as the name implies, rolled up eight different business units. So I went from ProServe from 87 to 90, and then Advantage International, literally in Georgetown, right near where I lived in D.C., uh, until 93. And somewhere along the line, you met your uh, lovely wife, Kelly. Where was that? I did. I was fortunate. I still say that. I don't know if she says that about me, of course, but I met her actually at Palm Beach Polo and Country Club. Her dad was the general manager at Palm Beach Polo. She, like yourself, was from Chicago. She grew up in the, uh, the northern suburbs in Barrington. Her dad was a tennis professional. And then Bill Ilvesacker, that ran the Gould Corporation, brought him in to run the Metal Club, which was the tennis club next to Gould's corporate headquarters. And then when Gould, or rather Bill Ilvesacker, who was a big polo player, really identified Wellington as the place to create the polo club. He, he, you know, Gould and the corporation bought all this land. He developed polo. He developed the whole real estate development, the country club, et cetera. So, I mean, just as a quick aside, Bill Ilvesacker really is to be credited for founding Wellington, Florida, because if it wasn't for his, his interests and certainly long-term vision, Wellington today wouldn't be the polo capital, uh, certainly of the, uh, of the Southeast, if not the East Coast. Well, so did Kelly end up going back to Washington, D.C. with you? Was she part of the journey back up to work in D.C.? Not immediately. We met her dad again, ran the Palm Beach Polo Club. My parents had a home at Palm Beach Polo. So we used to, as we call it, became vacation friends. So we'd see each other at Christmas and at spring break. We were still all, all of us were still back in college. And then we all graduated, and um, you know, I, I lived down there for a year and then went back to D.C. In the meantime, she took a marketing job in Fairfield, Connecticut. So being that I was from New York, I was now living in D.C., we would, we would commute on the weekend, so to speak. I'd go up to Fairfield or she'd come down to D.C. And, and then eventually she moved to Washington, lived with a good friend of mine, General Pershing's apartment in D.C. across from the zoo, a great history uh, lesson literally there. General yeah, Pershing's literally apartment. General Pershing's apartment. On. So you and Kelly, did you get married down here in uh, D.C. or where? We we actually got married in Washington. Uh, I was working for ProServe. She moved to D.C. to work for a a firm that represented resort properties. The Breakers was one of them, the Biltmore, Broadmoor, et cetera. Then she sold her her resorts basically to in the association market to the uh, to her her, her uh, to the resorts uh, sold association meetings. So we uh, yeah we got married in May of '93 in Georgetown. Had a great wedding on Memorial Day weekend and, you know, still maintain roots up there, Carrie. I have a home in Oxford, Maryland, which is on the eastern shore, uh, which we've had since uh, we lived in D.C. When I moved to Florida, I didn't want to sell it. But, uh, yeah, it was wonderful. And so May of, of 93, we get married. And soon thereafter, I accept a job to work for Jack Nicholas, And we moved to Florida in December of 93. Uh, and I was hired by Jack to run his sports management department. Again, I was in the athlete representation business as a sports manager slash sports agent from uh, the ProServe and Advantage International days is how I got into this business after that internship. And Jack was looking to have someone come down to run his Golden Bear sports management operation, which was something he started for his son, Steve, Steve Nicholas. And they were, they were in football, they were in basketball, they were in other sports. And it 
it dawned on them one day that why aren't we in golf? I mean, this whole company, Golden Bear Sports Management, was a company that was created to market Jack Nicholas, the greatest player of all time. So if we're representing athletes, why aren't we representing young golfers? You know, that would be the the, the light bulb moment, right? So he hired me. Uh, it was wonderful. I, I was actually talking to them for over a year. At the time, didn't want to move to Florida. You know, from New York City, Washington, D.C. is one of the greatest cities in the world uh, still today. And I frankly didn't want to come to Florida. Florida at the time was for a bunch of old people, and uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't something I aspired to do in my my late 20s. But, you know, obviously I did, and uh, I'm glad I did because I wouldn't be anywhere else. So what was your job working for the Nicholas organization? So was it your job to recruit other athletes uh, for the organization to represent? So my job for Golden Bear Sports Management was I was the head of the golf division. I brought clients with me that I had represented from pro-serve days to Advantage International days, guys like Hale Irwin, Lee Jansen, Duffy Waldorf, a number of other guys. So I brought my clients with me to Golden Bear. My my goal with, with Jack and the team was to continue to manage those players, but also sign up young players. So when you've got the, you know, when you've got the 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 US amateur winner or you know Walker Cup players, some top young amateur players looking to sign with agents and management companies, you know, is there really a better brand out there than Golden Bear and Jack Nicholas? And that's really what was the reason and why the reason I came down. Because again, as I mentioned, I didn't really want to come to Florida. Uh, I love my life in DC. I love working for Advantage International and before that ProServe. But, you know, IMG was the leader at the time. And, you know, are we really going to make an impact? So I thought if I was going to make a move, how do I how do I turn down an opportunity, being that I'm in the golf business, to work for the greatest player of all time under his umbrella? Um, so obviously I made the move, Kerry, and it's, 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 been, it's been great. I mean, obviously I've made a few moves since then, but it, it was wonderful to get up close and personal with you know, someone we all have grown up with. I mean, my first Masters in person, because my mom was from Augusta, was 86 Masters. I mean, is there a better Masters to go to other than perhaps Tiger winning last year? So that was my first entree to Augusta National, which is a pretty good way to get started. No, I can just remember the first time that I met Jack standing in front of him and thinking, oh my God, this is a guy that I've been watching on TV forever. And then over time, as I uh, got more comfortable, and and uh, Jack's, for our listeners that don't know, Jack's grandchildren went to the same school that Ken's kids and my daughter uh, went to. So we saw him almost at every sporting event because he's such a great grandparent. He and Barbara are there all the time. There came a point where I actually uh, chided him uh, quite a bit about the pants that he wore at that 1986 Masters, those uh, plaid pants. That that was really uh, an amazing event in 1986. And I'm sure he took your comments, you know, the typical Jack way, right? But he did win the Masters in those ugly pants. He did win the Masters in the <laughs> ugly pants. And he was, he was able to brush it off and tell me, hey, you know, it, it is what it is. That's what we wore at the time. And I'm sure he was paid well to wear whatever he had, he had on at the moment. So, Ken, if you were talking to a young person, somebody just getting out of college or early in their career, and they said, I love this career path. I'd love to go into some type of sports marketing or sports management. What are some of the things that you would tell them that they should be doing to prepare themselves uh, for that type of a career? Well, as you would expect, I mean, in your career, the same too, Kerry. I mean, there, there, there's so many young people interested in both of our career paths. And, you know, from my perspective, it's while sport really drives kind of the leisure side of our leisure and also professional side of, of really who we are and our DNA and everything else. 
it's a it's a business. I mean, it's proven, right? Mark McCormick started it in '62, and the, this industry has just really taken off, and it's it's grown. and And I can get a little bit more in detail as to where I think this business has come from and where it's going to go. But I, I say to a lot of young people, ironically, just today, just today, I got an email from a freshman at Dartmouth that heard I was in the business, and he's looking to get in, and he was asking the same questions you were. So we're going to talk actually next week, and I'm going to say to him what I say to a lot of other people: is you know, do your research. This is not a hobby, right? This is not if you play golf, you want to get in the golf business. If you play tennis, you want to get in the tennis business. This is a serious business. I mean, this is no different than any other business. This is not a business to get into to literally, in my case, tee it up every day and play golf with your friends. That's not why you get into this business. I got into this business because I educated myself on what the industry was. I followed the trends in the industry. As I mentioned earlier, I was watching the America's Cup on television and noticing the commercial activity surrounding the America's Cup. I go to games, football, NFL, Major League, NHL. It's funny, I'll watch the action, but I'm also looking at who is sponsoring the teams, who's sponsoring the individuals, who's sponsor, who's paying millions of dollars for their billboards around these stadiums. And then I ask myself, why are they doing that? They are obviously trying to reach an audience. You know, the sports audience to a lot of businesses is very, very attractive. The demographics skew from, from rich all the way down. But for many industries, the, 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 the sport industry is extremely attractive to try to reach your consumer, which means we're really an extension of the advertising business. And that's where the whole sports marketing world really got started is Mark McCormick was brilliant, Donald Dell thereafter, was how do we utilize a professional athlete like Arnold Palmer to help deliver, to help sell, promote an image of a company, whether it's Hertz way back when or some of the other great companies Arnold Palmer has endorsed over the years. So it's an extension of the advertising business. When I say that to young people, they kind of scratch their head and they don't really understand it right away. But again, you're going to spend, what, $100,000 for a Time Magazine ad, if people are still reading magazines, I do, or you can take that same $100,000 and you can apply it to a 30-second ad during a PGA Tour event, a tennis event. You can put a logo on a player. You can do a commercial where that player endorses your product. That player has influence. People look up to these athletes, most for the right reasons, but people look up to these athletes. And if these athletes are promoting a product, more than likely that consumer is going to align himself closely with his or her fan, his or her star, I should say, uh, celebrity. And, you know, again, it's, it's, it's an extension of the advertising business. So it's, it's, it's not terribly difficult, but again, it's a multi-billion dollar, I think we're actually over a trillion dollars now in the total sports marketing world between sponsorship, television rights, events, et cetera, et cetera. So, Ken, that uh, brings up an interesting uh, memory for me, because when I graduated, I, I said I went to the University of Southern California, and I did, but I ended up graduating from the University of Iowa, and all of my friends went back to Chicago, and uh, my college roommate got a job selling advertising for the Chicago Bulls, and he thought he had it made in sports marketing, and I'm sure he made at least $12,000 <laughs> uh, the first year selling ads for the Bulls. He ended up running a phenomenal club in Chicago called Buddy Guys Legends, which was a nightclub run by the uh, Grammy award-winning musician Buddy Guy. So he had a great entree from learning how to sell and learning how to market. That's a very, very good point. A lot of young people don't realize that it is a very serious business, and it's not just all about having a good time and going out to the golf course or going to, to taking people out to ball games. Ken, one of the things that 
we have in our business is we have a process. Our process is called the principled wealth process. It's designed around a number of things that over the years I have learned about what it's taken to become successful in the financial advisory business. I'm sure there's a few key things that uh, you can think of that you say, these are the things that have really kept me on track. I mean, for me, it's deliver what you are telling people that you're gonna do. And we have a whole acronym for our process that we go through that says all of the things that we need to do to be successful. But the most important one to me is if you tell somebody you're gonna do something, that you follow through on that, whatever obligation that you have made to that person. Are there some things in your business that you say, hey, these are absolute musts if you're going to be in the sports business? Well, I, I, I think like any business, I mean, we, we can carry these across uh, multiple, multiple businesses. You know, I think what's most important, well, several of them, uh, of course, but from my perspective, I've been doing this for 32 years. You know, reputation is 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 extremely important. I can take 30 years of a tenure in this industry and destroy my reputation by making one poor decision. Making a bad decision is one thing, but making an unethical poor decision is another. We tend to over-deliver. That's our motto. We over-deliver to our clients, whether it be our ambassadors, yourself, to the Honda Classic, we try to over-deliver for what, we, what we're asking you to donate to charity, to our corporate event division, to uh, whatever we have to do. But to your point, you make a promise, you stick with it, you have a clean re- reputation, and you, uh, you tend to over-deliver to your clients. And, and also, your clients will rely on you for more things than you realize once they trust you, once they realize that you're creative, you think out of the box. I have people calling me all the time that are just picking my brain because, you know, again, if you're going to run an idea by somebody, you're going to get a response. Some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be bad. Some of it doesn't matter or it's not appropriate uh, for that business unit. But at the end of the day, you know, it's it's relying on relationships. It's creating this 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 bonding, you know, relationship basically. And it, it's critical. And it's, it's served me well for 32 years in this business. And, you know, I hope at the end of my time, people look back and go, you know what, if nothing else, I, I could trust Ken and he always delivered a great product and his team was ethical. And, and that's another thing too on the team because, you know, you, you, we've heard the old adage, you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? So I don't care if your business is 10 employees, five employees, 40 employees, 100 employees. If you have somebody out there representing your brand, I'm a big brand guy, representing your brand, and that person is not carrying the baton or carrying the flag the way he or she should be carrying it, and therefore creates a, a negative image of the business, that doesn't work. It's so like we're cancer in the organization. Absolutely. And you got to get rid of it. And it's hard. Look, I'm as I'm as loyal as anybody, but when you've got a problem in business, you've got to get rid of it because if you don't, it's going to fester and that's going to turn into a bigger problem. Yeah. Do you have a favorite business book? Well, probably no surprise what Harvard Business School didn't teach you, you know, Mark McCormick's book, or what you don't learn at Harvard Business School was a book that he wrote early on. He's written, well, he's passed away, but he wrote, I think, four or five editions of that. But it was was a, a book, obviously, when I was getting started and interested in this business, I read it. I thought it was right on. 
I also, you know, I, I read once in a while the whole the, the whole financial world, Peter Lynch books. I find, I mean, I'm I'm very much a a gut feel type of guy. I'm not too smart, so I have to go by my gut and by my relationships with people. And and I think a lot of Peter Lynch's strategy on Wall Street back when he was building Fidelity for the Johnsons was was very much that. I mean, he he, you know, we read all the time. He'd go out and he'd see what products are selling off the shelves, and he'd just go do his anal, you know analysis of the company, and boom. You know, I think it's it's you know can be pretty easy sometimes, but I'm not too smart, so I need to figure out how to make get through life the way I can uh, do it. Very very nice, Ken. That uh, you're being humble, but thank you. The Peter Lynch book One Up on Wall Street was one of my favorite books as a young man, and it's a book that even though it's almost 30 years old, it might even be older than that. I still send out to young investors so that they can read his strategies for what he taught people just to use common sense. It's very much like the Warren Buffett strategy of using common sense and buying things that you're familiar with, that you know, and that you know is not going to go out of business. And I actually played golf with him at Old Marsh twice, Kerry, which was a real treat. Again, not being a finance guy, I mean, you would have loved it. But, you know, it was just, it was so neat being around this guy because first of all, he's such a normal person. And it it was just neat. I mean, again, you know, tracking his success and I, 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 try to do a lot of that in my world. I don't overcomplicate things. I try to look at things that are in front of me. I don't try to dig too deep into different issues, good or bad. I try to just, you know, look, let's look, as we all get older, I think it's, it's part of being seasoned too. I think we don't, we don't overreact. We, we sit back, we make proper decisions. We make common sense decisions to use your term. Yeah. There's so many things that I still need to ask you. So I'm going to, I want to return to your working down here for Jack Nicholas. And eventually you make the decision to start your own sports management firm. What, when did that happen? How did that come about? And you had a pretty long run before you eventually sold that company. Is that right? Yeah, you know, so I joined Golden Bear at the end of 93. So let's just call it January of 94. And Jack went public in 96, if we all remember. He thought it was something that would be a monetary win for him. You know better than anyone, Kerry, the, the ups and downs of that world. So in middle of 96, Golden Bear files with, the, with NASDAQ. And of course, the call sign is Jack. Go figure, right? J-A-C-K. And they make the decision to go, go public. Uh, at that time, they decide which divisions within his company, Golden Bear International, will be part of the public shell and companies, divisions that are not part of the public shell. So you know, probably no surprise to many, the design business stayed private. That was the the money maker in the company. Uh, what went into the public shell at the time were his marketing revenues, where you know tens of millions of dollars a year was the golf course construction business, which designed the course, which built the courses that Jack designed. And the the sports management business was going to go into that world. While we weren't a huge revenue-producing entity for Jack, we were a sexy business, and they thought that would be important. At the time, he also had something called Nicholas Golf Centers, which um, Dominic Chang started family golf centers from Nicholas Golf Centers and ended up buying Nicholas Golf Centers back from Jack. So that was in the public shell as well. I decided at that time, I was at a crossroads because Jack had just bought a company from his old buddy called Executive Sports, which is a uh, really was the first event management business of its kind, professional event management business, Doral, Honda, Classic at the time, and others. And Jack asked me to run that for him uh, to remain in the public company. 
And again, I was I was in the athlete representation business, and Jack at the time was like, you know, Ken, it's not kicking out a lot of revenues, so you know, let's just kind of disband that and let's not focus on that. Which honestly was the right decision for him going public, but for me, Carrie, it wasn't the right decision because these are clients of mine that have followed me from ProServe to Advantage to now Golden Bear Sports Management. And I wasn't going to just turn my back on them. And it was time for me to be more of an entrepreneur. I'd always been an entrepreneur, but it was time for me at these crossroads. I could either go left or I could go right. So I, I went right. I went out on my own in 1996. Jack was pretty surprised. And I explained to him my rationale as to why I was doing it. He didn't agree, which is fine. We still talk about it today. However, he was my first backer. I told him that while I'm doing this, I asked him if he would if he would help back me. He didn't even he didn't sell me the business per se. He was just like, if you want to do that and I'm gonna close it down, you just take the business. I said, But I, I'd like to talk to you about a loan and uh, some seed money just to get started. Because it's you know, it's hard. You've got a, I've got a staff of I think two or three at the time and you know, you got to get paid and you got to ramp things up. And uh, a lot of the old commissions belong with uh, stayed with Golden Bear contractually, which was fine. So he, he loaned me some money and I was happy to say that I paid him back within two years. And when I paid him back, this is a great line he gave me. He said, what is this for? I said, well, Jack, this is the loan you gave me two years ago. He said, well, Ken, nobody's ever paid me back. I said, well, well, Jack, Okay, but you know I'm a man of my word. Uh, back to integrity. You helped me get started, and I gave you your money back. I can't afford the interest on the money, which was nominal, of course. But uh, he was really appreciative, and that that's always a fun story. And we do uh, talk about that every once in a while. Wow, that is a great story, Ken. So you start your business. I'm sure it was easy, no problem. <laughs> Just getting a new business off the ground, no sleepless nights, no worrying about making payroll. People were just banging down the door to get in. Well, in, in a way, right? But because I was able to bring my clients over, I had a you know a, a bucket or a basket of business right away. At the time, Hale Irwin had just turned 50. It was, let's see, this was 96. So in 97, Hale Irwin wins 10 times on the Champions Tour, now the Champions Tour, then the Senior Tour. We, it was dominating. Oh, boy. It was, it was the Hale Irwin, Gil Morgan show every week on ESPN. We turn it on 4 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday. There it was. And that, that led to some pretty nice endorsement deals. We signed some of the larger endorsement deals for Senior Tour Golf at the time for Hale Irwin. Hale was wonderful. And uh, that, that really helped fuel the, the business and you know, allowed us to expand into some other, other divisions of what I was doing. And you know, it, it worked well. Uh, I, I will say, Kerry, one of the... You know, one of the, well, the good and the bad of the athlete representation, let's call it the agency business, right? I mean, in today's world, it's all about the athletes and the sports agents. And you hear about these huge salaries, guaranteed salaries these athletes are making, and therefore their agents are making pretty big numbers as well. In golf, there's no guaranteed anything. You know, you're teeing it up other than your endorsement revenue, which is is big, but it's not NFL big or Major League Baseball big, even by today's standards, other than perhaps Tiger Woods or, you know, maybe Phil Mickelson or Rory. But it's not huge. So, you know, these guys are earning their stripes every day. And, you know, just recently I was talking to Jack about the past Honda Classic and and how a lot of players are are really challenged as to what tournaments to play in because there's so many good events out there. The purses on the PGA Tour are, you know, $7 million plus. The winners are making a million one plus every week. 
So they're not playing as much. You know, the, the PGA Tour has a minimum event um, mandate. You have to play 15 events to keep your tour card. But when I mentioned that to Jack and he said, how come so-and-so is not playing the Honda or this guy's not or that guy? I, I just said, Jack, they can't play them all. He said, boy, you know, they're making too much money because back when he played, you know, you had to play every week because that's how you earned your living. And while he didn't play more than two weeks in a row and one week home, uh, most guys were literally playing every week. So, you know, what's what's going on in the world today with these these in, in enhanced uh, salaries for for sport and the the purses that are going through the roof? What we're finding is guys just aren't playing every week like Jack Jack did. So, but back to my point. My point is, you know, these guys had to play. To earn a living, and if they played poorly and missed cuts, they're not making any money. One of the one of the, we hear it all the time. I mean, I I I think there's some former athletes that are in the financial management consulting business now. These athletes are making so much money that they're spending it all, and they don't remember or they don't realize that you know going up that mountain is wonderful, but eventually you're going to come down the other side. And if you're if you set yourself up financially, and I'm saying this to you, Carrie, which is crazy because you're the one manages all this money. You know, if you don't manage your money properly when your career comes down the other side, boy, you're in a lot of trouble. A lot of these careers can be fairly short. But Ken, you brought up something that I want to pivot to right now. What you brought up is the event that I think, and most people that I know, think is the finest sporting event that we have anywhere in South Florida. And that is the Honda Classic. Probably over 10 years ago, uh, you asked me to become an ambassador for the Honda Classic. I was so honored at that time because it's a very small group of local business leaders that help raise money for the tournament and raise awareness of the event. Ken, you took over the Honda in 2006, is that right? Right after the six events. So seven was our first year, but yeah, we were in place literally Monday after the 2006 Honda. And I was living, I had just moved down here. I was living in Mirasol, and the Honda Classic was leaving Mirasol as you were taking it over and moving across the street to what ended up being a phenomenal venue and a great golf course at uh, PGA National. So how has the Honda grown in the almost 15 years that you've been affiliated and uh, running the event? And by the way, it's not lost on me that Jack asked you to run events, and here you are running an event. <laughs> yeah, good point, right? I was going to do that for him. You know, the PJ Tour came to me in 05 and asked me if I'd be interested confidentially in, in talking to corporate Honda, American Honda Corporation, and the tour about taking over this event. And, of course, I said, absolutely, but what's wrong with the management company that's there? Actually, that's not totally accurate. I knew what was wrong with it. The, the, the previous Honda was a good event, but you know, you need to grow business every year. I mean, and I don't mean just, you know, result wise, you need to grow your business to the point where if you're not growing or doing something different and enhancing your product year in and year out, you're actually going backwards. This world is moving too fast. So I met with the tour. I met with American Honda, and I presented to them a marketing plan, which essentially was, look, we live in Palm Beach County. It's the best place on the planet. Okay, I'm biased, but it is. It is. It is. We live in paradise, to use your paradise expression. We have, I brought in the Nicholas family, Jack and Barbara. Barbara, in fairness, was on the old board, but she wasn't spotlighted or uh, as she is now. She's our co-chair with her son, Gary Nicholas. We have 
as we said, Palm Beach County. We have the city of Palm Beach Gardens. We have PJ National Resort and Spa, which in its own right can almost be defined as an iconic property. They've had the Ryder Cup. They've had the PJ Championship. Ryder Cup in 83, PJ Championship in 87, 12 senior PJ Championships. So there's plenty of history at PJ National. Jack Nicholas redid Tom Fazio's original golf course about 30 years ago now. Sorry, about 25 years ago now and created something called the bear trap. You know, it was a perfect storm for us. But as I say to a lot of people, you can have a great number of ingredients, but if the chef can't put it all together and create a masterpiece, you don't have anything. So very quickly, our blue chip assets were American Honda, the longest running sponsor on golf, in golf, the Nicholas family, Jack and Barbara, the, you know, the finest family in the game of golf, both from a philanthropic side and certainly from a professional side. Palm Beach County, Paradise, the city of Palm Beach Gardens, PJ National. I mean, right there is five iconic brands that together could be, we could create a, a fine golf tournament out of it. So that's what we did. We took it across the street. We also marketed it around events. Um, you know, one thing we said very early on is we're in the entertainment business, not the golf business, not the event business. We are in the entertainment business. And in fairness, I took a a page out of the playbook of the NBA, Major League Baseball, a little bit of hockey. The NFL at the time, in fairness, was not focused around entertainment. It was more focused on their core product, which, of course, was, was football. But if, you, if we think back 14 years ago, look where the NBA went from and to. I mean, it was, it was about bringing your kids to a game, and you had the fireworks inside. You had the, you know, the music blaring. You had so many different things outside of the core product. Major League Baseball, the same thing. I mean, you grew up in Chicago, you know, Wrigley Field, one of the most iconic stadiums in the world. But then when the new Comiskey came online, it was like going to a shopping mall. And look where sports venues have gone today. It's, it's about the entertainment side of sport. So what we needed to do very quickly was to define the new Honda Classic. We actually called it the new Honda Classic for a year, which Honda loved, and created more of a social gathering. We created a, an event to, to attend, what we call the must-attend event. We created a, just a place for people to come. Again, you know, the PGA Tour is going to attract you know, 40,000, 50,000 fans for the week, which is what the old Honda Classic did. And I don't need to spend a dime promoting the golf because the f golfers like you and myself you know we're going to go to the pj tour event right we want to be there you want to be there yeah. but how do i get your wife my wife our kids you know people in this office people in jupiter how do i get people that want to come out that want to get on a shuttle bus have the hassle of parking getting on a shuttle bus going in you've got to do it by attracting them to so many different things so again that's the entertainment side of what we're doing bring so friends bring kenny g yep kids free so you know look, our kids were young once right so i mean on weekends you're going to go where your kids want to go if, if you can attract your kids if i could attract families to come to the honda classic and make it enticing for young people parents are going to come we had well tire kingdom still one of our great partners tire kingdom family day we have the tire kingdom fireworks on friday and saturday night we have the tire kingdom concert series we have united technologies with their commitment to the military so i had to find partners that could underwrite so many different new aspects of a golf tournament 
And to be honest with you, 14 years later, I very rarely talk about the golf component. It's all about creating the fun and the energy. Malcolm Gosling, my great friend, our great friend, the owner of Gosling's Room, seventh generation running that company, he got it right away. So we've created the Gosling's Bear Trap, which has become the iconic area right on 16 and 17. You know, that's where United Technologies is. Our ambassador suite is on 17 Green. I've now that's got. I had my first dark and stormy. There you go. I don't. Hopefully you've had yeah. them since. Yeah. Tito's a partner. You know, so every one of our partners is an exciting brand we used to have a great partnership with kettle one and not that they did anything wrong our contract was up we tried to renegotiate with them we ended up talking to tito's to my good friend richie nestro who's like tito's employee number five and he got it he wanted action tito's is a great brand right you think tito's you think a lot of fun i don't care if you don't like vodka you've heard of tito's and you you know it, it just it exudes energy and exudes fun just like gosling's does we now have a whole bourbon trail out there so we went to kentucky sean denice our sales guy and i went to kentucky and we brought in you know four or five different local bourbon distilleries to partner with us this year alone we had our corona clubhouse out on 15 so corona premier clubhouse a new area open to the public you know another thing that we did out there was again this has all been done over 14 years so you got to start small and you got to grow into it but one thing that dawned on me early carrie was the old honda classic didn't have any bleachers for the public they had your traditional build around 18 and I asked the gentleman that ran the tournament, I said, how come you don't have any bleachers around this golf course for people to sit on? And he looked at me and he said, why do I want to spend a dime to invest in a consumer that's already given me his or her money at the gate? And I think that was the old operational view. Like, look, I've already got your 50 bucks or 40 bucks. Why do I want to spend another dime on you, which just is going to, uh, is going to uh, drive into my profit? Instead of looking you know, looking far out and trying to say, the better I can take care of my consumer, the more they might enjoy the product. The more they enjoy the product, the more they're going to tell their friends about the product, the more they're going to bring their families, and the more they're going to, to be repeat customers. So I invest a lot of money in the general public, the patron, that walks in our gate for $50 and $55, depending on when you buy your ticket. We have 20 areas, literally 20 areas at the Honda Classic that are open to the general patron. A special tip-up seat, a desired location. It starts with the FPL patio. We talk about Tito's, open to the public. Corona, open to the public. Garden of Life, open to the public. You know, we have so many areas. Rights, windows, and doors, open to the public. Obviously, I'm promoting my sponsors, but without my sponsors, Carrie, I can't make this happen because I can't invest the money to build these structures unless I have the financial backing behind it. Whereas the old school of thought was, let's invest money in a structure that I can sell to a corporation. I mean, you've been in the Ambassadors Club. You've been in the chalets, the Sky Suites. These are all privately owned real estate deals, if you will, for a week where companies own them. We have shared hospitality at 18 and shared hosp on the Champions Club and our Waterford Club. We have a new, very high-end shared hospitality called the Legends Club on 18, right on top of the green. It's fantastic. But again, our public structures are another way that we've defined ourselves a little bit differently because while on, some people might say I compete with myself, which I do, you know, the, the more enjoyable I make the Tito's or Garden of Life or other, the harder it's going to be for me to upsell a consumer into another ticket. But so far after 14 years, you've seen it. You've been a big patron of us. You've been a very, you know, huge supporter of what we've done. It's working. And the average PGA Tour event is four or five public structures. We have 20. Wow. It, it truly is a great event, and you have some phenomenal sponsors 
that help make the event very profitable. Speaking of the money that goes into the event, there's a lot of money that comes out of the event and it goes into our community and it gets funneled back into the community by uh, Children's Healthcare Charities, which is essentially part of the Nicholas Family Foundation and the uh, PGA Tour, which is really instrumental in giving back to the communities where they have these golf events. Tell us a little bit about the Honda Classic and how they give back to the community and how that's grown over the years. Because last year I heard the number and I just thought it was staggering uh, how much we're able to put back into our community. Well, let's, let me back up for a minute. And, and I hope if, if nothing else from this, this great uh, discussion you and I are having, I hope some of your listeners take away this. Every PGA Tour event is a 501c3. Every PGA Tour event is a 501c3. The tour spun off from the PGA of America in 1969. Literally. Club professionals are PGA of America. Tour professionals are PGA Tour. Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, Gary Player went and they created this new tour. Joe Dye was their first commissioner. No relation to Pete Dye. was the first commissioner. The new tour was based on giving back to the community. So every event is a 501c3, meaning Children's Health Care Charity, our host organization, we DBA it, Honda Classic Cares, is a 501c3. So everything we do, carry in our business, at the end of the day, the way we're measured is our profit. Like most businesses, our profit goes to charity. So we're, you know, it, it's an important component. It's important for people to understand that when they come out, when a gentleman, a woman, kids, they buy a Coca-Cola, a hot dog, a chicken sandwich, a beer, a Gosling's, Tito's, whatever it might be, a percentage of that is going to charity. So it's enormous. So to your point, we've been so fortunate. Uh, last year alone, we gave $5.1 million to charity. Um, $5.1 million. The history of the Honda Classic now is uh, just about $45 million. We just completed our 2020 event. We believe we'll go over $50 million. We don't have the numbers in because we're still trying to get our arms around that but that's the history of the honda classic but you know again that's really that you know people ask me all the time how do we measure our success and you know i I think in fairness there there are a number of ways right people can say you're playing field did tiger play did tiger not play the number of spectators we've had over two hundred thousand spectators through our gates for the last four years in a row two hundred thousand people have come through our gates so that's another metric. People might might say, you know, the, the weather. I mean, was the weather successful? You know, everything, though, drills back down to what are we going to make for charity? So while this past year, the 2020 event was a fantastic golf tournament, once again, Tiger didn't play. Rory didn't play because of the schedule. But yet we had 200, 206,000 spectators out there, which was our second highest crowd ever. And that goes back to the business model and the strategy that I created and employed back in 2006 for the 2007 event. Let's create an event that does not rely totally on your player field. Let's create an event that while it's one of the premier events on the PGA Tour, it's also one of the most enjoyable events for our community. So for us to be in late February, early March, we're moving into mid-March next year, which will be right in the middle of spring break time. So a lot of people coming down here, we think we're going to see a whole new audience, which will be pretty exciting. Exciting. That's but, great news. Yeah, yeah. And I, and you know, think the schedule the schedule changes for three years and for for various reasons. But you know, we think we think it's going to uh, really bode well for us. But again, the if you if you think about the movies, 
quick quick analogy here. If you go to the movies, you're probably going to go if you recognize an actor or if they have a couple big-name actors or actresses. Golf is really pretty similar, right, in that, you know, if Tiger's going to play, the world's going to show up. And, you know, I think we realize that. I, uh, Tiger is, they used to say, uh, Tiger moves the needle. We now say Tiger is the needle. <laughs> you know, even today, Tiger is the needle. He doesn't move it. He is the needle, which is a credit to, to him and certainly the, the, the world follows. But, you know, if we don't have Tiger Woods or some of these other great names, it's good. It's fine. You know, we still have 200 plus thousand people coming out there because our business model that we strategically designed was not based on the player field. It was rather based on the event itself. What do we do for our customers? Are they having a good time while they're at the event? I can't tell you, you know, one of the great feelings I have each and every year is watching people leave the tournament, not because they're leaving, but with a smile on their face, yeah. which is hilarious. You know, because I, I, everyone's having a good time. I mean, yeah, of course. You know, you've got that one percent that are going to complain that it was too crowded; they couldn't hear at the bear trap, et cetera, because they had to wait too long for the bus, which actually is not the case because we spent a lot of money on our buses. But you know, moving moving a couple hundred thousand people throughout really five six days is is not easy. Uh, you do it with transportation. You you do it logistically. We do it through operations. But you want to make sure that people have a great experience because if they have a good time, they're going to come back. And we've had a lot of people that have been there one year, two years, three years. My neighbor finally dragged me out. Didn't think I'd enjoy it. I've now been here five years in a row. I love those stories because that means the business model that we created is working. And if we have an off year, meaning we don't have a Tiger Woods year, we're still good because, again, the, the, the energy in our community is, is there. I mean, I felt more energy this year leading up to the Honda Classic than any year in the past. And people knew Tiger wasn't going to play. But it was rather, let's go out. Let's have a great time. Let's enjoy ourselves. It's the one meeting spot. It's the big networking opportunity for everybody. You know, I see you out there with your friends and clients and customers. I mean, it's, it's all about getting together. And it's the one time of the year in our community that we're going to do that. We always have a great time and there's always a great field. But Tiger, if you are listening, we would really love to have you play next year. Um, <laughs> that would certainly be a, a nice addition to the tournament. The years when he's been there, he's been phenomenal. A few years ago when he made that eagle on 18, you could. I was on the 17th hole at the time and I heard this explosion coming from the 18th green and Tiger had basically gotten into the hunt in the tournament. It was just electric. And Ken, this year at Augusta, I think you were there yep. at Augusta. I was there on Sunday at Augusta. And just watching all of the people around the 18th green was a phenomenal experience. He's an extraordinarily exciting player. But if we have him, that's great. If we don't, it's still a phenomenal event. Well, and the good thing that, you know, while, while yes, obviously everybody wants Tiger to play, he's, he's in our community. He tweeted out last year that he was very disappointed he couldn't play. It wasn't, again, anything that Honda has not done. It's just the schedule. You know, he apologized through Twitter to Jack. You know, he wants to support Jack and Barbara. You know, people want to play their event in their backyard. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, with the, with the new schedule on the PGA Tour, it's just making it more difficult for guys to play the events they, they really love. Ken, I want to wrap this up with the thought that you had all of this going on. You're running this uh, huge tournament. You're running some other events as well. I do. I own the Palm Beaches Marathon. I bought that three years ago after I sold to IMG and I left IMG to, to, uh, to acquire some other businesses. And that's where I was going. You had all this going on and you needed to have another event to run. So fortunately, you got both of your events done 
way before the current turmoil that's going on in our world right now with this uh, virus that's going around. Your timing was impeccable, however you uh, planned that out. But tell us about the marathon and what that's meant for uh, your business and where you see that going. So uh, a little bit ahead of that, I sold my business to IMG in 2013, I believe. Obviously, IMG, the largest sports marketing company on the planet. Uh, They were then taken over by William Morris Agency. So it was, you know, IMG, WME, William Morris Endeavor, I guess. I left them in 16 for various reasons and bought the Palm Beaches Marathon. Uh, The Palm Beaches Marathon, while it's a small little race, I remember talking to the IMG guys and they said, well, Ken, if you want to buy the New York Marathon, then we're all over it. But, you know, Palm Beach Marathon's small. And I get it. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar company. But again, back to my entrepreneurial roots, it was important for me to to follow my gut, right? I, I said earlier, I'm, I'm not the smartest uh, you know, person on the planet, so I follow my gut quite a bit. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But I bought the Palm Beaches Marathon carry as a way to grow that race because, again, we live in paradise. Palm Beaches Marathon, right? I mean, what a, what a great two words, Palm Beach. You know, there are not many places synonymous with Palm Beach in this world. You know, maybe Monte Carlo, maybe Rodeo Drive, Beverly Hills, maybe the Gold Coast in Australia. Maybe Carmel. Carmel, yeah, yeah, Carmel is phenomenal, yeah. but there, you know, you can count them on two hands. No yeah. more than two hands. You don't need more than two hands. So, you know, for me, it's a, I'm a branding guy. I'm a marketing guy. That's really where I, I came from. I'm a business marketing person. So, you know, if this were, you know, all due respect, the Melbourne Marathon, I wouldn't really be interested. So, I figured, I, let me buy this. Let me chew on this for a little while and see what I can do. I've brought in a couple great partners, new sponsorship. I just announced the Garden of Life, so it's going to be called the Garden of Life Palm Beaches Marathon, Jupiter Medical Center, our phenomenal hospital here is my presenting sponsor, both of which are sponsors of the Honda Classic, ironically enough. It's it's just an opportunity for me to continue to grow and to be an entrepreneur. I also have a, a business called K2 Road Sports. We manage about eight other races, one of which the Shamrock Run I had to cancel over St. Patty's Day because obviously what's going on in this world, you know, which was an interesting time. While it's a very tiny race, we are actually a little bit ahead of the curve, meaning a day or two from other much larger events and larger municipalities whom I was consulting with as to what I should do. And while I canceled, they were going to continue to leave parks and recs open and everything else. And with a day or two later, everybody shut down. So we were a little bit ahead of the curve. I was proud of the decision we made. Uh, we handled it handled it well. But the, the point of bringing all this up, Kerry, is that I, I continued to grow. I formed most recently a new partnership with ProLink Sports. Hollis Kavner is a great friend of mine. So we've created a joint venture called ProLink's K2 Sports, which he and I will continue to grow business together. He runs seven events on the PGA Tour, Valspar, Wells Fargo, Insperity on the Senior Tour, 3M, Sanford on the Senior Tour, and the Boca Raton Championship on the Senior Tour. Hollis is definitely a character. Callis is a character. You know, he's been in the business a long time. We've gotten along very, very well. We complement each other very well. The likes of Jay Monahan, the commissioner, Mike Davis, USGA, executive director, all our friends in golf all think it's a perfect fit together. So, you know, in life, you can have people that are two different types of people, but if you complement each other well, it's a, it's a great recipe for success in business. And and I and I bring up Hollis not only because I'm now part of a of the ProLinks organization with him in a new joint venture, but he is now experiencing three canceled events because of the situation we're in. The Valspar was the week after players. Wells Fargo Championship, a great event in Charlotte. And in Sparity in Houston, the same week as Wells Fargo. So this is an interesting time in our world right now because many of the businesses 
have never been through this before. We've been through recessions. We've been through 9-11. But this is unprecedented. And it's certainly unprecedented in the world of sport. And what these events that are being canceled and what the PGA Tour is going through day in and day out is uncharted waters. Nobody has experienced this. What do you do? I mean, the while we were fortunate to get the Honda Classic in and Bay Hill after us was the last event to be played, you know, our economy and our economic impact here has seen the benefit. Our philanthropy, we will kick out Honda Classic Cares Week in June. We will be able to give away a lot of money as we have in the past. But those markets, there's no economic impact. There's no philanthropic impact. There's no television impact. I mean, these 10 events, including, by the way, the Masters and the PJ Championship, you know, this this is uncharted waters. So, you know, I, I, I've... I bring that up because I've aligned myself with a guy named Hollis Kavner at ProLinx that's going through it, and we together are going through all this as well. So, you know, it's the world will survive as, as it always does, and we're fortunate because we live in the, great, in the greatest country and arguably the greatest place in this country and on the, on the, on the map. Yeah. Ken, thanks so much. I also want to give a shout-out to uh, your son, who's a great golfer, uh, Charlie, and uh, your lovely daughter, who used to play on the lacrosse team, my daughter, Sarah. Uh, Carly, she's back home. What's Carly doing now? So Carly's uh, working for ProLynx up in D.C. Uh, the Wells Fargo Championship will relocate in 21 because the President's Cup will go into Charlotte, so she's part of the advanced team up there. Played lacrosse uh, with Sarah and um, and played uh, club lacrosse at Auburn. So she went from a golf, soccer, lacrosse, three-sport, three, three sport, varsity sport, down to one club at Auburn, had a great time. My son Charlie's a senior. He's finishing his senior spring, unfortunately, at home. And he's been on the uh, Wake Forest golf team for four years. So he, he plays pretty good game of golf. Uh, he's absolutely fantastic. I remember watching him in the uh, Palm Beach County Amateur that they played at Jupiter Hills a few years ago. He's a great kid. You did a good job with those kids, Ken. And I certainly know that we need to give a lot of the credit for that to Kelly. So thank you. All the moms, by the way, all the moms. That's right. Thanks so much, Ken, for your time today. It's been great visiting with you. Uh, This is Kerry Stamp. You've been listening to the Business in Paradise podcast, and I've had a great interview this afternoon with Ken Kennerly. Thanks, pal. Great to be with you. Thank you for listening to the Business in Paradise Palm Beach podcast with Carrie Stamp, founder of Carrie Stamp and Company, Principal Wealth Advisors. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of the Commonwealth Financial Network. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Carrie Stamp and Company is located at 110 Bridge Road to Cuesta, Florida, 33469. Securities and advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network member FINRA SIPC, a registered investment advisor. Thank you.